well, we've reached the end. Last two chapters of 1984 by Georgia Orwell. I want to thank one of the lads over it. I understood that reference. Podcast over there from Dublin, Ireland. Ross, thanks for the request. I would have gotten to it eventually, but since you asked nicely, I went ahead and read it for you. Now, you have to come back on Monday for the next book. Anyway, um, oh, and thank you for putting up with all my stupid fucking questions. I appreciate that, too. Okay, let's quit chat. I'm going to start. Chapter 5, 1984, George Orwell. Chapter 5. At each stage of his imprisonment, he had known, or seemed to know, whereabouts he was in the windowless building. Possibly there were slight differences in the air pressure. The cells where the guards had beaten him were below ground level. The room where he had been interrogated by O'Brien was high up near the roof. This place was many meters underground, as deep down as it could it was possible to go. It was bigger than most of the cells he had been in, but he hardly noticed his surroundings. All he noticed was that there were two small tables straight in front of them, each covered with a green blase. One was only a meter or two in front of him. The other was further away near the door. He was strapped upright in a chair so tightly that he could move nothing, not even his head. A sort of pad gripped his head from behind, forcing him to look straight in front of him. For a moment, he was alone. Then the door opened and O'Brien came in. You asked me once, said O'Brien, what was in room 101? I told you that you knew the answer already. Everyone knows it. The thing that is in room 101 is the worst thing in the world. The door opened again. A guard came in, carrying something made of wire, a box, or basket of some kind. He set it down on the further table. Because of the position which O'Brien was standing, Winston could not see what the thing was. The worst thing in the world, said O'Brien, varies from individual to individual. It may be burial alive, or death by fire, or by drowning, or by impalement, or fifty other deaths. There are cases where it is some something quite trivial, not even fatal. He moved to the he moved a little to one side so that Winston had a better view of the thing on the table. It was an oblong wire cage with a handle on top for carrying it by. Fixed to the front of it was something that looked like a fencing mask with a concave side outward. Although it was three or four meters away from him, he could see the cage was divided lengthways into two compartments. 
and there was some kind of creature in them. They were rats. In your case, said O'Brien, the worst thing in the world happens to be rats. A sort of premonitory tremor of fear of he was not certain of what had passed through Winston as soon as he caught his first glimpse of the cage. But at this moment, the meaning of the mask-like attachment in front of him suddenly sank into him, and his bowels seemed to turn to water. You can't, you can't do that! You can't do that! He cried out in a high cracked voice. You can't! You couldn't! It's impossible! Do you remember, said O'Brien, the moment of panic that used to incur in your dreams? There was a wall of blackness in front of you, and a roaring sound in your ears. There was something terrible on the other side of that wall, and you knew what it was, but you dared not drag it out into the open. It was the rats that were on the other side of that wall. O'Brien! said Winston, making an effort to control his voice. You know this is not necessary. What is it you need me, want me to do? O'Brien made no direct answer. When he spoke, it was in a schoolmasterish manner, which he sometimes affected. He looked thoughtfully into the distance, as he were addressing an audience somewhere beyond Winston's back. By itself, he said, Pain is not always enough. There are occasions when a human being will stand out against pain, even to the point of death. But for everyone, there is something unendurable, something that cannot be contemplated. Courage and cowardice are not involved. You are falling from a height. It is not cowardly to clutch at a rope. If you come up from deep water, it is not cowardly to fill your lungs with air. It is merely an instinct you cannot disobey. And it is the same with the rats. For you, they are unendurable. They are a form of pressure that you cannot withstand, even if you wish to. You will do what is required of you. But what is it? What is it? How can I do it if I don't know what it is? O'Brien picked up the cage and brought it across to the nearer table. He set it down carefully on the baze cloth. Winston could hear the blood singing in his ears. He had the feeling of sitting in utter loneliness. He was in the middle of a great empty plain, a flat desert drenched with sunlight, across which all sounds came to him out of immense, dis out of immense distances. Yet the cage with rats was not two meters away from him. They were enormous. They were the age when rats' muzzles grows blunt and fierce, and his fur is brown instead of gray. The rat, O'Brien, said O'Brien, still addressing his invisible audience, although a rodent is carnivorous. You are aware of that. You will have heard things that happen in poor quarters of this town. In some streets, a woman dare not leave her baby alone in the house, even for five minutes. The rats 
are certain to attack it. Within quite a small time, they will strip it to the bones. They also know they also attack the sick or dying. They show astonishing intelligence in knowing when a human is being a human being is helpless. There was an outburst of squeals from the cage. It seemed to reach Winston from far away. The cat, the rats were fighting. They were trying to get at each other through the parishion. He heard also a deep groan of despair. That too seemed to come from outside himself. O'Brien picked up the cage, and as he did so, pressed something in it. It was a sharp click. Winston made a frantic effort to tear himself loose from the chair. It was hopeless. Every part of him, even his head, was held immovably. O'Brien moved the cage near. It was less than a meter from Winston's face. I have, I have pressed the first lever, lever said O'Brien. You understand the construction of this cage. The mask will fit over your head, leaving no exit. When I press this lever on the door of the cage, we'll slide up. These starving brutes will shoot out like bullets. Have you ever seen a rat leapt through the air? They will leap into your face and bore straight into it. Sometimes they attack the eyes first. Sometimes they burrow through the cheeks and devour the tongue. The cage was near. It was closing in. Winston heard a succession of shrill cries which appeared to be occurring in the air above his head. But he fought furiously against his panic. To think, to think, even with a split second left, to think was the only hope. Suddenly, the foul, misty, musty odor of the brutes struck his nostrils. There was a violent convulsion of nausea inside him. He had almost lost consciousness. Everything had gone black. For an instant, he was insane, a screaming animal. Yet he came out of the blackness clutching an idea. There was one and only one way to save himself. He must interpose another human being, the body of another human being between himself and the rats. The circle of the mask was large enough to now shut out the vision of anything else. The wired door, a couple hand spans from his face. The rats knew what was coming now. One of them was leaping up and down the other. An old scaly grandfather of the sewers stood up with his pink hands against the bars. He fiercely snuffed the air. Winston could see the whiskers and the yellow teeth. Again, the black panic took hold of him, and he was, he was blind, helpless, and mindless. It was a common punishment in imperial China, said O'Brien, as didactically as ever. The mass was closing on his face. The wire brushed his cheek. And then, no, it was not relief, only hope, a tiny fragment of hope. Too late, perhaps too late. But he suddenly understood that in the whole world there was just one person to whom he could transfer his punishment, one body that he could thrust between himself and the rats, 
and he was shouting frantically over and over, Do it to Julia! Do it to Julia! Not me! Julia, I don't care what you do to her! Tear her face off! Strip her to the bones! Not me! Julia, not me! He was falling backwards, into enormous depths, away from the rats. He was still strapped to the chair, but he had fallen through the floor, through the walls of the building, through the earth, through the oceans, through the atmosphere, into outer space, into gulfs between the stars. Always, away, away, away from the rats, he was light years distance, but O'Brien was still standing at his side and there was still the cold touch of the wire against his cheek. But through the darkness that enveloped him, he heard another metallic click, and he knew that the cage store had clicked shut and not open. Chapter 6 the chestnut tree was almost empty. A ray of sunlight slanting through a window fell yellow on the dusty tabletops. It was the lonely hour of fifteen. Tinny music trickled from the telescreens. Winston sat at his usual corner, gazing into an empty glass. Now and again he glanced up at the vast face which eyed him from the opposite wall. Big Brother is watching you. Caption said. Unbiden, a waiter came and filled his glass with victory gin, shaking into it a few drops from another bottle with a quill through the cork. It was, it was saccharine flavored with cloves, the specialty of the cafe. Winston was listening to the telescreen. At present, only music was coming out of it. But there was a possibility that any moment there might be some special bulletin from the Ministry of Peace. The news from the African front was disquieting in the extreme. On and off he had been worrying all day. The Eurasian army, Oceania, was at war with Eurasia. Oceania had always been at war with Eurasia, was moving southward at a terrifying speed. The midday bulletin was, had not mentioned any definite area, but it was probable that already the mouth of the Congo was a battlefield. Brazzaville, Lepaville were in danger. One did not have to look at a map to see what it meant. It was not merely a questioning of losing Central Africa for the first time in the whole war. The territory of Oceania itself was menaced. A violent emotion, not fear exactly, but a sort of indifferent excitement flared up in him, then faded again. He stopped thinking about the war. In these days he never he could never fix his mind on any one subject for more than a few moments at a time. He picked up his glass and drained it at a gulp. As always, it made him shudder, even wretch slightly. The stuff was horrible. The cloves and saccharin, themselves disgusting enough in their own sickly way, could not disguise 
the flat, oily smell, and what was worst of all was the smell of gin, which dwelt with him day and night, was inextricably mixed up in his mind with the smell of those. He never named them, even in his thoughts, and so far it was possible he never visualized them. They were something that he was half aware of, hovering close to his face, a smell that clung in his nostrils. As the gin rose in him, he belched through purple lips. He had grown fatter since they released him. He had regained his old color. Indeed, more than regained it, his features had thickened. His skin on his nose and cheekbones were coarsely red. Even the bald scalp was too deep a pink. A waiter again unbidden brought the chessboard and the current issue of the Times. With the page turned down the chess pro at the chess problem. Then, seeing that Winston's glass was empty, he brought the gin bottle and filled it again. There was no need to give orders. They knew his habits. <coughs> the chessboard. <coughs> The chessboard was always waiting for him. On his corner table was always reserved. Even when the place had, was full, he had it to himself, since nobody cared to be seen sitting too close to him. He never even bothered to count his drinks. At irregular intervals, they presented him with a dirty slip of paper, which they said was the bill, but he had the impression that they always overcharged him. It would have made no difference if it had been one way or if it had been the other way about. He always had plenty of no money nowadays. He even had a job, a sincere, more highly paid than his own old job had been. Music from the telescreen stopped and a voice took over. Winston raised his head to listen. No bulletin from the front, however. It was merely a brief announcement from the Ministry of Plenty. In the preceding quarter, it appeared that the tenth three-year plan's quota for bootlaces has been overfilled by 98%. He examined the chess problem and set out the pieces. It was a tricky ending involving a couple of knights, whites to play, and mates in two moves. Winston looked up at the portrait of Big Brother. Whites always mates, he, said, he thought, with a sort of cloudy mysticism. Always, without exception. It is so arranged. In no chess problem since the beginning of the world has black ever won. Did it not symbolize the eternal, unvarying triumph of good over evil? A huge face gazed back at him, full of calm power. White, always mates. A voice on the telescreen paused and added in a different, much graver tone. You are warned to stand by for an important announcement at 1530. 1530. This is news of the highest importance. Take care not to miss it. 1530. The tinkling music struck up again. Winston's heart stirred. 
That was the bulletin from the front. Instinct told him that it was bad news that was coming. All day, with little spurts of excitement, the thought of smashing defeat in Africa had actually been in and out of his mind. He seemed actually to see the Eurasian army swarming across the never-broken frontier and pouring down into the tip of Africa like a column of ants. Why had it not been possible to outflank them in some way? The outline of West African coast stood out vividly in his mind. He picked up the white knight and moved it across the board. There was the proper spot. Even while he saw the black horde racing southward, he saw another force, mysteriously assembled, suddenly planted in their rear, cutting their communications by land and sea. He felt that by willing it, he was bringing that other force into existence. But it was necessary to act quickly. If they could get a control of the whole of Africa, then they had airfields and submarine bases at the Cape. It would cut Oceania in two. It might mean anything. Defeat, breakdown, the redivision of the world, the destruction of the party. He drew a deep breath. An extraordinary melody of feelings. But it was not a melody exactly. Rather, a successive layers of feeling, in which one could not say which layer was undermost, struggled inside him. The spasm passed. He put the white knight back in its place, but for the moment he did not settle down to seriously study of the chess problem. His thoughts wandered again, almost subconsciously. He traced his fingers in the dust on the table. Two plus two equals five. They cannot get inside you, she had said. But they could get inside you. What happens to you here is forever, O'Brien had said. That was a true word. There were things, your own acts, from which you could not recover. Something was killed in your breast, burned out, cauterized out. He had seen her. He had even spoken to her. There was no danger. He knew, as though instinctively, that they now look almost no interest in his doings. He could have arranged to meet her a second time if either of them had wanted to. Actually, it was by chance they had met. It was in the park, on a vile, biting day in March, when the earth was like iron, and all the grass seemed dead, and there was not a bud anywhere except a few crocuses which had pushed themselves up to be dismembered by the wind. He was hurrying along with frozen hands and watering eyes when he saw her not ten meters away from him. It struck him at once that she had changed in some ill-defined way. They almost passed one another without a sign, and then he turned and followed her, not very eagerly. He knew that there was no danger. Nobody would take any interest in them. She did not speak. She walked obliquely away across the glass, trying to get rid of him, 
then seemed to resign herself to having him at her side. President, presently they were among a clump of ragged, leafless shrubs, useless either for concealment or for protection from the wind. They halted. It was vilely cold. The wind whistled through the twigs and fretted at the occasional dirty-looking crocus. He put his arm around her waist. There was no telescreen, but there must have been a hidden microphone. Besides, they could be seen. It did not matter. Nothing mattered. They could have laid down on the ground and done that if they had wanted to. His flesh froze with horror at the thought of it. She made no response. Whatever the clasp, whatever to the clasp of his arm, she did not even try to disengage herself. He knew now what had changed in her. Her face was sallower. There was a long scar partly hidden by the hair across her forehead and the temple. But that was not the change. It was her waist had grown thicker and in a surprising way had stiffened. He remembered how once, after the explosion of the rocket bomb, he had helped drag corpses out of some ruins, and had been astonished not only by the incredible weight of a thing, but the rigidity and awkwardness to handle, which made it seem more like stone than flesh. Her body felt like that. It occurred to him that the texture of her skin would be quite different from what it had been. He did not attempt to kiss her, nor did they speak. They walked back across the grass. She looked directly at him for the first time. It was only a momentary glance, full of contempt and dislike. He wondered whether it was dislike that came purely out of the past, or whether it was inspired also by his bloated face and the water that the wind kept squeezing from his eyes. They sat down on two iron chairs, side by side, but not too close. He saw that she was about to speak. She moved clum her clumsy shoe a few centimeters and deliberately crushed a twig. Her feet seemed to have grown broader, he noticed. I betrayed you, she said baldly. I betrayed you, he said. She gave him another quick look of dislike. Sometimes, she said, they threaten you with something, something you can't stand up to, can't even think about, and then you say, don't do it to me, do it to somebody else, do it to so-and-so, and perhaps you might pretend afterwards that it was only a trick and that you said it to make them stop and didn't really mean it. That's not true. At the time, when, it's, when it happens to you, you mean it. You think there is no other way of saving yourself, and you are quite ready to save yourself that way. You want it to happen to the other person. You don't want to give a damn that what they suffer. All you care about is yourself. All you care about is yourself, he echoed. And after that, you don't feel the same towards the other person any longer. Nope, he said. You don't feel the same. There did not seem to be anything more to say. 
the wind plastered over their thin overalls against their bodies. Almost at once it became embarrassing to sit there in silence. Besides, it was too cold to keep still. She said something about catching her tube and stood up to go along. We must meet again, he said. Yes, she said. We must meet again. He followed irresolutely for a distance, half a pace behind her. They did not speak again. She did not actually try to shake him off, but walked at just such a speed as to prevent him from keeping abreast of her. He had made up his mind that he would accompany her as far as the tube station, but suddenly this process of trailing along in the cold seemed pointless and unbearable. He was overwhelmed by the desire not so much to get away from Julia as to get back to the Chestnut Tree Café, which had never seemed so attractive as at this very moment. He had a nostalgic vision of his corner table with the newspaper and the chessboard and the ever-flowing gin. Above all, it would be warm there. In the next moment, not altogether by accident, he allowed himself to become separated from her by a small knot of people. He made a half-hearted attempt to catch up, then slowed down, turned, and made off in the opposite direction. When he had gone fifty meters, he looked back. The street was not crowded, but he could not distinguish her. Any one of the dozen hurrying figures might have been hers. Perhaps her thickened, stiffened body was no longer recognizable from behind. At the time when it happens, she said, You do mean it. He meant it. He had not merely said it, he wished it. He wished that she, and not he, should be delivered over to the... Something changed in the music that trickled out of the telescreen. It cracked, and a jeering note, a yellow note, came out. And then, perhaps, it was not happening. Perhaps it was only a memory taking on the semblance of a sound, a voice singing under the spreading chestnut tree, I sold you, you sold me. Tears welled up in his eyes. A passing waiter noticed that his glass was empty and came back with the gin bottle. He took up his glass and sniffed at it. The stuff grew not less but more horrible with every mouthful he drank. But it had become the element he swam in. It was his life, his death, and his resurrection. It was gin that sank him into stupor every night, and it was gin that revived him every morning. When he woke, seldom before eleven hundred, with gummed up eyelids and a fiery mouth, and a back seemed to be broken, it would have been impossible to even rise from the horizontal if it had not been for the bottle and teacup placed beside the bed overnight. Through the midday hours he sat with a glazed face, a bottle handy, listening to the telescreen. From fifteen to closing time he was a fixture at the chestnut tree. No one cared what he did any longer. No whistle woke him. No telescreen abonished him. Occasionally, twice a week, he went to a dusty, 
forgotten-looking office in the Ministry of Truth and did a little work, or what was called work. He had been appointed to a subcommittee of a subcommittee, which sprouted from one of the innumerable subcommittees within the minor difficulties that arose in the complication of the 11th edition of the New Speak Dictionary. They were engaged in producing something called an interim report, but what it was that they were reporting on, he had never definitely found out. It was something to do with the question of whether commas should be placed inside brackets or outside or something. There were four others on the committee, all of them persons similar to himself. There were days when he assembled and then promptly dispersed again, frankly admitting to one another that there was not really anything to be done. But there were other days when they settled down to their work almost eagerly making a tremendous show of entering their minutes and drafting long memorandas which were never finished. When the argument as what they were supposedly arguing about grew extraordinarily involved and abstruse with subtle haggling over definitions, enormous digressions, quarrels, threats even, to appeal to higher authority, and then, suddenly, the life would go out of them, and they would sit round the table looking at one another with extinct eyes, like ghosts fading in a cockrow. The telescreen was silent for the moment. Winston raised his head again. The bulletin! But no, they were merely changing the music. He had the map of Africa behind his eyelids. The movement of the armies was a diagram, a black arrow tearing vertically southward, and a white arrow tearing, tearing horizontally eastward was the tail at first. As through for reassurance he looked up at the imperturbable face on the portrait. Was it conceivable that a second arrow did not even exist? His interest flagged again. He drank another mouthful of gin picked up the white knight, and made a tentative move. Check. But it was evidently not the right move, because, uncalled, a memory floated into his mind. He saw a candlelit room with a vast white counterpane bed, and himself, a boy of nine or ten, sitting on the floor shaking a dice box and laughing excitedly. His mother was sitting opposite him and also laughing. It must have been about a month before she disappeared. It was a moment of reconciliation when the nagging hunger in his belly was forgotten and his earlier affection for her had temporarily revived. He remembered the day well, a pelting, drenching day when water streamed down the window pane and the light outdoors was too dull to read by. The boredom of the two children in the dark, cramped bedroom, became unbearable. Winston whined and grizzled, made futile demands for food, fretted about the room, pulling everything out of place and kicking the wainscoting until the neighbor, neighbors banged on the wall, while the younger child wailed intermittently. In the end, his mother said, 
Now be good, and I'll buy you a toy. A lovely toy, you'll love it. And she had gone out into the rain to a little general shop, which still sporadically opened nearby, come back with a cardboard box containing an outfit of snakes and ladders, and he could still remember the smell of the damp cardboard. It was a miserable outfit. The board was cracked, and the tiny wooden dice were so ill-cut that they would hardly lie on their sides. Winston looked at the thing sulkily without, and without interest. But when his mother lit a piece of candle and sat down on the floor to play, soon he was wildly excited and shouting with laughter as the tiddlywinks climbed hopefully up the ladders and then came slithering down the snakes again, almost back to the starting point. They played eight games. Winning four each, his tiny sister, too young to understand what the game was about, had sat propped up against the bolster, laughing because the others were laughing. For a whole afternoon, they had been happy together, as in his early childhood. He pushed the picture out of his mind. It was a false memory. He was troubled by false memories occasionally. They did not matter so long as one knew them for what they were. Some things had happened, others had not. He turned back to the chessboard and picked up the white knight again. Almost in the same instant he dropped it into the board with a clatter. He started as though a pin had run into him. A shrill trumpet call had pierced the air. It was the bulletin. Victory! It always meant victory when a trumpet preceded the news. A sort of electric thrill ran through the cafe. Even the waiters had started and pricked up their ears. The trumpet call had let loose an enormous volume of noise. Already an excited voice was gabbling from the telescreen, but even as it started it was almost drowned out by a roar of cheering from outside. The news had run around the streets like magic. He could hear just enough of what was ensuing from the telescreen to realize that it had all happened as he had foreseen. A vast seaborne armada had secretly assembled, a sudden blow in the enemy's rear, and the right arrow tearing across the tail of the black. Fragments of triumphant phrase, phrases pushed themselves through the den. Vast strategic maneuver, perfect coordination, utter rout, half a million prisoners, complete demoralization, control of the whole of Africa, bring the war within a measurable distance of its end. Victory, greatest victory in human history, victory, victory, victory. Under the table, Winston's feet made convulsive movements. He had not stirred from his seat, but in his mind he was running, swiftly running. He was with the crowds outside, cheering himself deaf. He looked up again at the portrait of Big Brother, the colossus that bestrode the world, a rock against which the hordes of Asia dashed themselves in vain. He had thought how ten minutes ago, yes, only ten minutes, there had been an evocation in his heart as he wondered whether the news from the front would be a victory or defeat. Ah, 
It was much more than a Eurasian army that had perished, much changed in him since that first day in the ministry of love. But the final, indispensable healing change that never happened till this moment, the voice from the telescreen was still pouring forth its tale of prisoners and booty and slaughter, but the sounding outside had died down a little. The waiters were turning back to their work. One of them approached with the gin bottle. Winston, sitting in blissful dream, paid no attention as his glass filled up. He was not running or cheering any longer. He was back in the ministry of love, with everything forgiven, his soul white as snow. He was in the public dock, confessing everything, implicating everybody. He was walking down the white-tiled corridor with the feeling of walking in the sunlight, and an armed guard at his back. The long, hoped-for bullet was entering his brain. He gazed up at the enormous face. Forty years it had taken him to learn what kind of smile was hidden beneath the dark mustache. Oh, cruel, needless misunderstanding! O oh, stubborn, self-willed exile from the loving breast! Two gin-scented tears trickled down the side of his nose. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. The end. That's the end. I don't know what else to say. It's a fucking fantastic book. However, I will say, I had forgotten all about the rat scene in this book. It has been a while since I've read it. So, I forgot about how, like, that sticks in your brain. But anyway, thanks, Irish, for requesting it. Sorry it took me so long to read it. I'm trying to do better. And come back on Monday, November 2nd, for the beginning of the namesake of this podcast, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And also come back because it's my birthday. Yep. Starting an important book in my life on my birthday. I couldn't have timed it better. Alright, love you all. Thank you for listening. And that's it. Have a good day. Or night. Or afternoon. Wherever the hell you are in the world. <laughs>